invite you to take your copy of God's Word and turn with me to 1 Corinthians. We've made it to chapter 8. 1 Corinthians chapter 8. And uh, while you're turning there, let me just say it's good to be back in the pulpit after a few weeks, uh, a couple of weeks away. I missed you while we were gone. And I am very excited to be back uh, in 1 Corinthians together. Uh, Let's just remember that Paul is writing this letter to answer various questions that have been posed to him by the Corinthians. And uh, the Corinthians have asked the Apostle Paul an array of questions related to theological and practical matters. And so the Apostle Paul has uh, dealt with the issue of division, uh, sinful division, and the pride that lies behind it within the church. He has addressed the issue of sexual immorality within the church and talked about the need for loving, faithful church discipline. Uh, He has also answered various questions related to the topics of marriage and divorce and singleness. Now here in chapter 8, he is dealing with the issue of uh, food, uh, meat that has been offered to idols in the temple, pagan temple. And uh, you'll see that in verse 1 as well as verse 4, that this is the issue that Paul is focusing on now. Now, I suspect that the last time you, uh, you went to Giant Eagle to do your shopping and you were in the meat area uh, before you picked up your chicken or beef or pork, whatever it was, my guess is you didn't stop to think, well, hang on a second, was, was this meat offered to a pagan idol? Um, that's, that's not a, an issue that we face. Uh, for some Christians in the world, it still is, but it's not a live issue for us. Nevertheless, I hope we will see today how, how relevant and applicable the principles that Paul uses here are for us. Meat was uh, essentially available in a city like uh, Corinth in two places. First, you could, you could go to the main marketplace and purchase meat directly from a vendor, but that was, that was a more expensive option. And so a second option was to purchase meat at these various pagan temples, and you could go and you could purchase the leftover meat, the meat that was not used for the sacrifices. Some temples even had temple dining halls where you could go and sit down and, you know, order your Zeus burger or whatever and uh, enjoy meat at a discount. And so that was a, that was a draw for some people. So here are these Corinthians who have been converted to faith in Jesus Christ out of their old, their old pagan background of worshiping idols. And some of them understood that since there is indeed only one true and living God, whatever pagan superstition and idolatry may say to the contrary, that that must mean that meat offered to idols is in fact still just meat in the end. And so they felt free in their conscience. They felt free to go to these pagan temples and purchase meat or to go into the pagan dining halls and actually sit down and, and have a meal because meat, after all, is just meat. But others, maybe maybe more recently converted, found that practice, unthinkable. The, the associations with their old life uh, were, if, if, if we can put it this way, still too raw, uh, still too fresh. 
Uh, For them, it was a matter of compromise to to go to a pagan temple and to purchase meat that had been offered to an idol. It violated their conscience, and so they simply couldn't do it. Okay, so there there were these two groups in the church of Corinth, and they were beginning to look at each other with a little bit of suspicion, and it was causing troubles, uh, problems. And those with weaker consciences, as Paul We'll describe it in terms of weaker and stronger. Those with weaker consciences who would, who would not eat the meat felt that those who did were, were wrong. Right? They're, they are compromising. They are cozying up with the world. We can imagine them saying. That was their perspective. Meanwhile, those with stronger consciences who, who did eat the meat felt that their weaker brothers and sisters were imposing needless and excessive restrictions on their freedom, and so they felt judged. Actually, there is another layer to it we we can see here in in the text, because some of the strong believers were actually putting some pressure on the weaker believers to go against their consciences for whatever reason, maybe to not miss out on the fellowship, um, to be with fellow believers, whatever the reason was, they were being pressured to eat meat that had been offered to idols. And so these, these Christians, their, their consciences were stinging and screaming. No doubt, the, the stronger believers may have thought that they were helping these, these weaker Christians along, getting past their, their needless and unnecessary scruples. But in fact, as Paul tells them, They were needlessly wounding their brothers for whom the Lord Jesus Christ died and shed his own blood. And so that's the situation in Corinth. Again, it's not not our situation, but we do have uh, parallels. And the principles Paul provides about the nature of Christian liberty, I think, are timelessly important for us all. Uh, Before we pray and read, let me just give you a, a quick Uh, outline, some handles to hold on to as we make our way through chapter 8. In verses 1 through 3, Paul is going to talk about knowledge and love and how they relate, how how they belong together. He's going to help us understand and he's going to explore this idea that a robust Christian knowledge is constrained by an equally robust Christian love. Uh, knowledge, knowing what's right, isn't the only principle to guide our behavior as Christians, in other words. We, we, also, we also need to love one another. So he brings love and knowledge together and shows how they relate in verses 1 through 4. And then in the rest of the chapter, he treats each of these things in, in turn. He talks about knowledge more so in verses 4 through 6, and then about love in verses 7 through 13. So love and knowledge, then knowledge and love. That's the flow of thought here that we're going to follow. Uh, so let's go ahead and pray, and then we'll, we'll read this portion of God's word. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you that you are a God who uh, speaks to us uh, through your Son and by the Holy Spirit, and we need you to know you. And so we pray for the, the ministry of the Holy Spirit among us this morning, that we might hear the voice of the risen Christ, and all that he has to say to his church here today. Open our eyes to see the ways that, um, Lord, we have misused knowledge, uninformed by love, and lead us 
in repentance and show us as well the ways that we have failed to know as we ought to know. Instead, Lord, we we pray that you would lead us to, to know and to love in a way that reflects how we are known and loved in the Lord Jesus Christ. And it's in his name we pray. Amen. 1 Corinthians 8, beginning in verse 1. This is God's word. Now concerning food offered to idols, we know that all of us possess knowledge. That's the saying of the Corinthians. All of us possess knowledge. Paul says in response, this knowledge puffs up, but love builds up. If anyone imagines that he knows something, he does not yet know as he ought to know. But if anyone loves God, he is known by God. Therefore, as to the eating of food offered to idols, we know that an idol has no real existence and that there is no God but one. For although there may be so-called gods in heaven or on earth, as indeed there are many gods and many lords, in quotations, yet for us there is one God, the Father, from whom are all things and for whom we exist, and one Lord Jesus Christ, through whom are all things and through whom we exist. However, not all possess this knowledge, but some, through former association with idols, eat food as really offered to an idol, and their conscience, being weak, is defiled. Food will not commend us to God. We are no worse off if we do not eat, and no better off if we do. But take care that this right of yours does not somehow become a stumbling block to the weak. For if anyone sees you who have knowledge eating in an idol's temple... Will he not be encouraged, if his conscience is weak, to eat food offered to idols? And so by your knowledge, this weak person is destroyed, the brother for whom Christ died. Thus, sinning against your brothers and wounding their conscience when it is weak, you sin against Christ. Therefore, if food makes my brother stumble, I will never eat meat lest I make my brother stumble. Well, I think it's right to say that the most important piece of real estate in your life are the 18 inches between your head and your heart, ensuring that biblical truth travels those 18 inches from your head to your heart really is, I think, a key to growth in the Christian life. No matter how many books you've read, no matter how much knowledge you have, no matter how well you know your catechism, no matter how theologically or doctrinally savvy you may be, all your knowledge is in fact utterly useless if it does not make the 18-inch commute and stops from being merely theoretical ivory tower conviction to becoming a spiritual reality in your life. I think that idea lies behind much of what Paul is saying here in this chapter in 1 Corinthians. It's his argument in verses 1 through 4. If you take a look there, Paul is, is first quoting the Corinthians, and the ESV helpfully includes quotation marks to mark the reference from the Corinthians' original letter, where they say, in summary form, all of us possess knowledge. 
These are, the, these are the strong, these are the mature believers at Corinth saying, we all have knowledge. And if you look at verse 4, you'll see the content of their knowledge in relationship to the issue at hand. They know that an idol has no real existence and there is no God but one. So they have been, they've been graciously converted, sovereignly saved out of their pagan polytheism to worship the one true and living God. They have come to know the Lord Jesus Christ. And so they know that the worship of, of many gods at the end of the day is, is nothing more than foolish, man-made superstition. There's only one God, the God who has made himself known, the God who has revealed himself, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Okay, so far so good. But there's a, there's a problem for these strong believers at Corinth. This knowledge, Paul says in response, this, this knowledge puffs up, but love builds up. So if anyone imagines that he knows something, he, he does not yet know as he ought to know. In other words, Paul is saying knowledge unmixed with love, uninformed by love, is poison. Knowledge unmixed or uninformed by love is poison. It's like, well, we're talking about meat offered in a pagan temple, so let's take meat as our illustration. It's like undercooked meat. I, I love a good steak, um, and I like my steak medium rare, if not rare. So let's just imagine, you know, I go to a restaurant, order a steak, and they deliver it to me, and it looks great. I cut it open. It's red and juicy on the inside. That's fantastic to me. But let's say it's undercooked. What does it do? It, it, it might look great, but it makes me sick. And so you see, it's very important for us to understand here. Uh, Paul is not saying knowledge is unimportant or irrelevant. He's, he's not setting, aside, uh, setting against uh, knowledge and love. He's not setting them off against each other. He's not setting them at odds with each other. Instead, uh, he is trying to help us understand their, their correct relationship. So it's important we see. He, he's not saying, look, you all have knowledge, but what you really need is love. So don't worry about knowing the truth. Just love. That's something we can imagine hearing today, but it's not, in fact, the message of the Apostle Paul. As Christians, we, we ought to pursue knowledge. We, we ought to want to, to know our God and know his word. We ought to want to know what we believe and why we believe it. We ought to seek to understand how God's truth is a coherent, systematic uh, body of truth that, that magnifies God and humbles us in the dust and leads us to love God and others in response and propels us out in service and in mission. We ought to know the truth because the truth is you will never actually grow in your Christian life beyond what you know about God and his word. And so Paul is not saying, let's be clear about this, don't worry about knowing, just love. What he is saying is that no matter how much you know, if it is not related to love, if it is not expressed in love, and if it does not generate love in your heart for others, 
you do not yet know as you ought to know. You might know true truth, but you do not know true truth truly. You may know the truth at some kind of intellectual level, but it hasn't penetrated your heart and produced the love and the loving action that all true theology is meant to lead to. And so Paul issues this helpful corrective. Bare knowledge, knowledge divorced from love, this kind of knowledge puffs up. But knowledge informed by love builds up. But then he offers some some positive help here. He doesn't just confront uh, their arrogant belief of being the knowledgeable ones, the really mature ones. He offers a different approach an entirely different model, which I think is really surprising when we come to terms with what the Apostle Paul is really saying here. If you look at verse 3, you see it. If anyone, but if anyone loves God, he is known by God. Now, the way Paul has been arguing up to this point, I think leads you, as the reader, to expect him to say, if anyone knows God, or I'm sorry, if anyone loves God, he knows God. That's what we might expect him to say. But that's, and that's true as far as it goes. But Paul's point is actually far more radical than that. Paul's point is if you love God, you only love him because he first knows you. Think of the Apostle John and what he has to say about that. God knows you in such a way in the Christian life that it generates love in your heart to him in response. And so as Christians, God God knows us with with more than just a a bunch of factoids on a list, a a bunch of details about our lives. He knows us with that knowledge of loving, intimate communion and fellowship. He has drawn us into relationship with himself by By his saving grace and in his son he has pardoned all of our sins and counted us righteous in his sight. He has adopted us as children into his family. He has given us a new nature in our union with the Lord Jesus Christ. He knows us intimately and profoundly. He knows us through and through. He knows us in our sin and our failure. And though we grieve him at times... He does not altogether withdraw from us, but he holds on to us and he perseveres with us. He knows us. And brothers and sisters, being known like that causes us to love him. The Corinthians, Paul is saying, ought to be able to say with the Apostle John, we love God because he first loved us. The way God loves makes us love him him. And so I really think Paul is saying in the same way, the way that we, uh, we know ought to make others love us. The way that we know ought to make others love us. I think that actually is the model that the apostle Paul is setting out here. The way God knows us generates love in us in response. And here he's talking about fellowship among the saints, among brothers and sisters within the church of Jesus Christ. And he's saying that the way we know ought to make others love us 
Now, I think that is really a searching test of my own Christian life, which I will be the first to confess I have failed. I wonder, I wonder about you. Just ask yourself uh, these questions. Does the way, the truth I, I know about God and Christ and myself and the world, does the way I know the Christian truth so affect me that others are attracted Or are they repelled? Are others made to love by the way the truth changes and grips my own heart? Do I know in such a way that others who know me love me? You know, there are some Christians who who know so much. They are like a walking encyclopedia of theology and dictionary definitions of reformed terminology. And yet their knowledge seems to generate this ugly, repellent, self-righteous, critical, censorious spirit. And people understandably don't want anything to do with them. Because all they're ever doing is puffing themselves up and putting others down. Their knowledge doesn't draw others. It, It in fact repels them. And so I think it's worth asking, does your knowledge of the truth, does your knowledge of the gospel, the good news about Jesus and the truth of the word of God, does it make you lovely or loveless? Does it make you a desirable person to be with or does it make you simply intolerable? That's not the right way of putting it, actually. It doesn't make you that way. You misuse it that way, perhaps. Does it make you attractive or compelling? That's the question Paul's message is is forcing us, I think, to face up to. If not, you do not yet know as you ought to know. Because Paul is saying in the Christian life and in Christian theology, knowledge and love belong together. But now in the rest of the chapter, Paul deals with each of these things in turn. And in verses 4 through 6, he focuses on the theme of knowledge. And here Paul substantially agrees with those those strong Corinthian Christians who felt free in their conscience to to go and and eat uh, meat offered to idols, go and eat in the temple dining rooms. Uh, He agrees with them that an idol has no real existence and that there is no God but one. In verse 5, he's essentially saying, you're right. Even though there are many so-called gods for us who have come to know The truth, we understand there is but one God and one Lord. But I want you to look closely at verse 6. Whether you realize it or not, this is a passage that is often employed to to set knowledge and love at odds with each other and say, yeah, knowledge has some value, but what really matters is, is love. Um, And for those who take that position and read the text that way, I think you really have to reckon with verse 6 and and read it as if Paul uh, was interested in promoting love and not caring about doctrine. That's a very difficult position to maintain because in this very context, in the middle of his argument about knowledge and love, he offers what I think is one of the most profound, dense, theologically significant statements on the doctrine of God in the entire New Testament. Look at verse 6 with me. For us there is one God, the Father, from whom are all things and for whom we exist, 
and one Lord Jesus Christ through whom are all things and through whom we exist. Now, you, you may recall, I, I hear the allusion there, first of all, to the Shema, right? the, the, the language of the oneness of God, Deuteronomy, Shema Israel, Adonai Eloheinu Adonai Chad. Right? That, that's built into what the Apostle Paul is saying there in 1 Corinthians 8. But it should also remind you of another Pauline passage. If you think of Romans 11, verse 36, for from him and through him and to him are all things. In other words, God is the, the originator, the agent, and the end of all things. He's the originator in the sense that he's the source of all things. He's the agent in the sense that he is the one working out his purposes. He is the end of all things in the sense that all created things find their end and their purpose in him, in his glory and praise and exaltation. He's the origin and the agent in the end, for from him and through him and to him are all things. And Paul is using those same categories here in 1 Corinthians 8. But notice, notice how he assigns them to God the Father, and to the Lord Jesus Christ together, equally assigning to both the work that belongs to God exclusively. Because for the Apostle Paul, for those of us who by grace have come to know the living God in Jesus Christ, there is but one God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. There are not three gods, but one God, one undivided divine essence in three co-equal, co-eternal persons. Father, Son, and Holy Spirit existing together in an infinite fellowship of love and joy and glory and light. You see, this is a profoundly rich passage from the Apostle Paul. And I can't help but wonder, as I've thought about this, if, if what he's doing is sort of saying to these smug Corinthian Christians who are eager to demonstrate that they are the ones who really know. I wonder if what he's doing is saying to them, oh, you think you know, do you? Let me take you to the edge of the chasm of ineffability and majesty and glory. And, and let's just pause and stand here for a moment. Let's think about the triune perfection of God. You think you know? <laughs> if you think you know, you do not yet know as you ought. Behold your God and put your hand on your mouth and place yourself in the dust. Behold your God and learn humility. I, I really think that's what Paul is up to here. He's saying, yeah, you're, you're right about idols, the truth that you so glibly parrot. While you boast and congratulate yourself, you ought to be placing yourself in the dust and humility. And the truth that you know ought to melt your heart and make you adore rather than make you self-congratulatory. But instead, what are you doing? You are wounding your brothers for whom Christ died. See, knowledge, dear friends, should never ever be cause to self-congratulate and to strut, and to preen. If knowledge becomes a, a stick with which we, we beat other people, we do not yet know as we ought. 
And so Paul takes us, I think, to the, to the brink of ineffability and leaves us there in awe, barely able to even talk about the truth that he articulates here, let alone define it precisely. And so Paul talks about love and knowledge together, and he helps us understand the need for both. And then he talks about knowledge, and he calls us to practice humility in our assertions. And then finally, he talks about love. Uh, Having described the problem, helped the mature, the knowledgeable Corinthians who need to rein in their self-confidence and their pride, now now he tackles the problem more directly if you take a look at verses 7 through 13. Now, again, I think if we try to put ourselves in the shoes of the stronger Corinthians, I think at this point they're thinking, we've got Paul on our side. Paul's on our team here. And so these strong Corinthians are probably expecting him to say something like, you know what, these stronger ones, they're, they're quite right. You, you weaker believers in Corinth, you, just, you need to stop and you think. You need to apply your theology. Uh, you, need to, you need to get along to those, those dining halls, get over yourselves. Right? Don't be so weak and misguided. Just, just reason it out. But if that's what they were hoping the Apostle Paul would say to them, they were, they were really in for a shocker, weren't they? Take a look at verse 7. Some of them, having weaker consciences, were being led to eat meat offered to idols against their conscience. Maybe they were being led in some way to, to feel ashamed because they weren't participating uh, in these times with the stronger, more mature Christians in the congregation who would even go and eat, perhaps, in the temple dining halls. And yet, as they went along... As they were pressured into doing so, some of these weaker Christians, their, their consciences were stinging and, and screaming at them, don't do it, this isn't right. Because the association with their old paganism was just, was just too fresh and they were made to feel unclean. They were made to violate their conscience. Now Paul is quick to say in verse 8, eating the food or not eating the food, look, it's of little significance. Food will not commend you to God, Paul says. You're not any better or any worse off for eating or not eating. So Paul is saying to the strong Corinthians, you know, you might think that your knowledge allowing you to eat this meat uh, with a clear conscience makes you look pretty good, pretty mature. But God is not impressed. And verse 9, while you're congratulating yourselves on how mature you are as you chow down, Uh, The consciences of your brothers are screaming at them and they are failing, they are sinning, they are compromising and you don't seem to care. What a failure of love. That's what Paul is saying. What a failure of love. These are your brothers and sisters whom you are bound to in the Lord Jesus Christ. And so verses 11 and 12, by your knowledge this week, person, this weak brother or sister, is destroyed. The brother for whom Christ died, this sinning against your brother and wounding their conscience when it is weak, in doing so, you sin, you sin against Christ because you have helped this weak, struggling Christian ignore their conscience, suppress their conscience, deny their conscience, and you're imposing on them what their conscience condemns. 
So Christ gave up all for them. And you won't even give up some of your rights for their sake? Wouldn't, wouldn't you rather be like Jesus and surrender rather than take a stand upon your liberty? Rather than take a stand upon your rights? Wouldn't you rather surrender your rights for the good of those you are called to love in the Lord Jesus Christ? And that leads Paul to the conclusion in verse 13. I mean, it's, it's pretty radical. I think maybe there's a little bit of hyperbole in it to get the point across. He says, therefore, if food makes my brother stumble, I will never eat meat lest I make my brother stumble. If the cost of loving my brother is being a vegetarian, which face it for some of us sounds like a dreadful prospect. If the cost of loving my brother is being a vegetarian, I will gladly do that because I love him more than I love this thing. If the cost is laying aside this right, setting down this liberty that I'm convinced I have in the Lord Jesus Christ, I will gladly lay it down because they are more important than this thing. That's what the Apostle Paul is saying in this passage. I'll give it up. This thing I hold dear, this, this right that I have, this liberty that I privilege because I love you more than I love my own rights and privileges. So what's the point, dear brothers and sisters? If you can take anything away from this passage, it's simply this. Love constrains liberty in the Christian life. Love constrains liberty. My knowledge of the truth is not the only criterion by which I base my behavior. My love for my brothers and sisters in Christ directs and governs and even constrains how I live in order to be a blessing and never, ever a burden. And so just think, dear friends, how, how you are loved. Think about this for a moment. How you are loved in and by the Lord Jesus Christ. He gave it up, didn't he? He gave it all up, setting aside his rights and his privileges to set you free. So what won't you give up? You know, if, you're, if your heart is pushing back against the teaching of the Apostle Paul here, if you find yourself resisting it, let me humbly suggest to you that the Lord lovingly and gently is exposing an idol in your life. And he's helping you to see that this idol has a, a grip, an iron grip on your heart. Is there a personal liberty that you would not give up for the sake of the brethren? See, we don't, we don't have a problem with, with food being offered to idols but we certainly do have our parallels, don't we? So let's think this through. Let's think about how this applies to us. Love constrains liberty. Love directs knowledge and how we live out our Christian lives for the good of others as we seek to point and direct all to Christ. We are called to love like Christ has loved us to the point of giving up our rights because love constrains liberty. 
Gospel love constrains liberty. And so does love constrain your liberty? Can you point to something in your life where you've said, yes, for the sake of love, I've laid this thing aside. I've given up this right or this privilege because they are more important to me than this thing. Or do you boast in your superior knowledge, your so-called knowledge, and bulldoze over the concerns of others? Does what you know make you desirable or does it, does it push people away? Is it repellent? Is the image of our beautiful Lord Jesus Christ shining in your words and in your deeds? This, dear friends, is the call of God in this passage to us. Let, let the truth, let the truth travel the 18 inches from your head to your heart so that we can together bear fruit in the way that we live together as the people of God and to the glory of his name. Let's pray. Our Father in heaven, we do thank you that you know us so profoundly and intimately, that you know us through and through, that you're so patient with us and that you are committed to seeing us become more and more like the Lord Jesus Christ. Would you please teach us to direct our lives along the rule of love Show us the ways where we have been deficient or out of balance. Make us well-balanced Christians, Christians who are growing in knowledge and in love together in our Lord Jesus Christ. And we pray all of these things in his name. Amen.